0: This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI, News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com.
1: The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.
2: Welcome to Wealth Wake Up this Sunday morning. Dick Donahue with you here on KGMI. Thank you for being with us. Well, we're going to start out today talking a little bit about the debt limit drama that we see going on. The U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path, but not for the reasons that most people think. Yes, the national debt is $31 trillion, well higher than annual GDP, and only going higher. And yes, the budget deficit last year was more than a trillion dollars for the third year in a row. None of this is good, but the real root of the fiscal problem And our biggest concern isn't the debt or the deficits, it's government overspending. If the government had an enormous debt, but spent little, the private sector could produce the country's way out of the debt problem. If the U.S. had little debt, we could still have economic problems from too much government spending. But ultimately, the government funds itself by borrowing or taxing the wealth produced by private industry. If spending were high and borrowing were low, taxes would have to be prohibitively high. The bottom line is that excessive spending leads to economic ills. According to the Congressional Budget Office, spending on entitlements like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other health care programs will rise from 10.7% of GDP to 15.1% in the next 30 years. Meanwhile, the net interest on the national debt will almost certainly be higher than it was last year and less than until we bring the deficit down and slow the growth in debt. This is why the debt limit debate now going on in Washington DC is so important. Don't fall for the false narrative that one group of politicians wants to push the country into default, nor should anyone want to abolish the debt ceiling altogether. If there is a way to shine some light on overspending, Why shouldn't it be used? If debt ceiling politics can focus attention on fiscal issues, it's done its job. But what we expect is a last-minute budget deal that includes either caps on discretionary spending for future years, some sort of commission or committee that can make proposals to reform entitlements with expedited procedural rules so the proposals get a congressional vote, or both as part of a bipartisan deal to raise the debt ceiling. But let's get down the highly unlikely path that the debt limit isn't raised. The Treasury Department would still have enough cash flow to pay all securitized debt as it came due as well as entitlements such as Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. It's true that other programs and agencies would have to take substantial cuts to make sure those higher priority payments get made, and yes, the Biden administration will not enjoy making that choice, but it's still a choice, and they alone get to make it. Ultimately, investors and voters need to realize that not every national debt is the same, even if they're in the same amount. The U.S. had debt problems after the Revolutionary War, which was a small price to pay for starting an independent country. We had a debt problem after World War II. But that was the price we paid to win a crucial war. Our current debt problem is not like those. In many cases, politicians spend to win favor with constituents. It's not wrong to use the debt ceiling as a way to focus attention on this problem and the endemic overspending that it creates. That's a habit that this debt limit debate needs to break. Take a look at our global roundup for the week. We saw global equities were higher on the week, but off their peaks as the robust U.S. labor data suggests that the U.S. Federal Reserve may need to tighten monetary policy more than investors had anticipated. The yield on the U.S. 10-year note was little changed at 3.53%, after trading as low as 3.33% in the wake of what was perceived as a dovish Fed press conference. The prices of barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil fell $3 from a week ago to $77.50, while volatility as measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, was little changed at 18.5. So, global macro news. Well, we all know now that the U.S. labor market remains red hot. And hopes that the Fed's tightening cycle may be near its end faded on Friday as the U.S. economy added 517,000 jobs in January, far exceeding the consensus forecast of an increase of 188,000. Additionally, the prior two months of payrolls were revised higher by a net of 71,000. The surge in job creation saw the unemployment rate fall to a 53 year low of 3.4%. Average hourly earnings rose 4.4% year-over-year, down from the 4.6% in December. The strong data square with a jump in the U.S. job openings in December to over $11 million, and a drop in weekly jobless claims to 183000 Fed Chair Jerome Powell noted on Wednesday that job gains were robust over the prior three months, averaging 247000 and labor conditions remain out of balance. The report will only exasperate that imbalance and likely keep the Fed on a tightening path. And the Fed, ECB, and the Bank of England all hiked rates this week. Financial markets rallied on Wednesday and Thursday. After the Fed, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England all raised rates in their early February meetings. The Fed slowed its tightening pace to a quarter of a percent, as expected after a half percent hike in December and a series of four point seven five percent hikes ended in November. The Fed fund's target rate now stands at four and a half to four and three quarters percent. While the Fed made it clear it intends to hike a few more times before pausing, markets have priced in less than one additional quarter point rate move. The odds of a hike moved up materially after the employment report. And despite Chair Powell's assurances that no cuts in rates are being contemplated this year, investors anticipated that they would be reduced in the second half of the year, though those bets were trimmed after Friday's employment report. Wednesday's press conference was remarkable, more than what was not than what was as Powell failed to forcibly push back against months of loosening U.S. financial conditions. The ECB was the most hawkish central bank of the group. Hiking half a point or 50 basis Points and all but promising an, an additional half point hike in March. So despite the hawkish outlook, investors believe that all three central banks are approaching the end of their tightening cycles. The Bank of England signaled that inflation is peaked and that while the British economy is already in recession, the downturn will be shorter and shallower than it previously forecast. The Bank of England dropped its statement from a pledge to raise rates forcibly to signaling to many what pause in the cycle may be near. in China rebounds strongly in January, China's Manufacturing Purchasers Managing Index rose more than 10 points in January as the lifting of COVID restrictions caused a surge in economic activity. The PMI rose to 52.9 from 42.6 in December, and forecasts for economic growth have raised in the wake of the economy's rapid reopening. For example, the International Monetary Fund this week raised China's GDP forecast to 5.2 percent in 2023 from October's outlook of 4.6 percent. And the President Biden and McCarthy met on the debt ceiling. And so President Biden and Speaker of the House Rep. Kevin McCarthy met at the White House on Wednesday to discuss raising the nation's national debt limit. Republican lawmakers want an agreement to limit future spending in exchange for raising the limit. Well, the White House contends that Congress should just raise the ceiling, keep spending money, keep going at it, keep doing what they're doing without any conditions. And while no agreement was reached after Wednesday's talks, McCarthy said he's optimistic that the two sides can reach common ground. The U.S. Department of Treasury estimates it can employ extraordinary measures through early June that will allow the government to meet its obligations. Stick Donnie you with you. We'll wake up here on KGMI. We'll be right back. Where do you go to find the best steakhouse between
0: Seattle and Vancouver, B.C.? Northwest Washington's famed Steakhouse at Silver Reef is the place for award-winning, unforgettable fine dining. Savor our Northwest-sourced, dry-aged USDA prime steaks. Finish to perfection in our 1,800-degree broiler. Immerse yourself in world-class elegance. Browse our award-winning wine and spirit list, while our attentive staff help to create lasting memories. Reservations are recommended through SilverReefCasino.com or by calling Silver Reef Casino Resort.
1: At Silver Reef Casino Resort, we've got that. Escape the hustle and bustle of the city and get ready for a fun and relaxation-filled getaway. Luxury hotel rooms? Yep. Championship golf? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Top-rated casino with all the best slots and table games? Yes and yes. World-class dining at the region's best and wine spectator award-winning steakhouse? Yes, please. The total package is only missing one thing. You! Silver Reef Casino Resort. Located off I-5, exit 260. We've got that.
3: This is Steve Berger, Lead Counselor and Director of Contact Counseling Recovery Services. Despite being a fourth-generation Whatcom County resident
2: from a solid, established family, when I was struggling with alcohol and drug addiction, my family didn't know where to turn to help. By the grace of God and a recovery program, I was able to get sober and have devoted the last 34 years of my life helping others find recovery from addiction. If you or a family member is struggling with substance abuse, please contact us at 360 671 3277 or contactcounseling.com.
0: Hi, I'm Tom Borthick, the Diamond King. Chocolates, roses, jewelry? With any $50 purchase or more, get a free rose and a box of chocolates. We have nice silver pennants for $59, gold necklaces starting at $109, plenty of silver earrings to choose from at $59, or maybe a big old diamond ring. And you get a free rose and a box of chocolates with any purchase over $50. Give your love everything. Jewelry, chocolate, and a rose. Yes, you are the man or woman. This Valentine's Day because you shopped at Borthwick Jewelry.
1: The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow
0: all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children
1: and my wife.
2: Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you. For Asset Advisors, we are located out on the Pacific Highway that's out in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture, and our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, that's Ferndale 98248, our phone number 360-733-1200. Check out our website, too, at WealthWakeUp.com. In fact, you can go in there under podcasts, and if you miss some of our shows, just click on podcasts, it'll take you to the KGMI website, and you'll see our list of our shows that we do on there. Let's talk about a few quick hits for this week. The Institute of Supply Management's Manufacturing Purchaser Manager Index fell more deeply into contraction in January, down to 47.4 from 48.4 in December. However, the services index bounced back sharply in January to 55.2 from 49.2 in December. And the S&P Global Eurozone composite PMI edged up to 50.3 in January from 49.3 in December. And the European Central Bank's lending survey this week showed that credit conditions have tightened and loan demand is weak. The survey also indicated the largest decline in mortgage demand in its history. The International Monetary Fund upgraded its global outlook in China's strong reopening and unexpected resilience in the U.S. and European economies. Its view is now for a 2.9% global growth in 23, up from 2.7% forecast in October. China's reopening will be good for global growth, but bad for teeming global inflation, the fund said. Media reports this week indicated that President Biden is considering appointing Fed Chair Leo Brainerd as chair of the National Economic Council. And the U.S. productivity data released this week surprised to the upside, growing 3% in the fourth quarter, while third quarter data was revised up 1.4% from 0.8%. Unit labor costs dropped as a result to 2.2% from a downward revised 2%, which is more good news on the inflation front. The MIMF warned that central banks must be resolute in their fight against inflation and ensure that policy remains appropriately tight long enough to bring it back to target and keep it there. Loosing financial conditions pose a conundrum for central banks, the fund cautioned. And earnings news, about 50% of the constituents of the S&P 500 have reported for the fourth quarter of 22. Blended earnings per share, which combines reported data with estimates of those yet to be reported, shows that earnings declined 5.4%, while sales rose 4.3% compared with the same quarter a year ago, according to data from FactSet Research. Companies with more global and domestic exposure are reporting weaker earnings and sales in the fourth quarter. And going to continue now, we'll go on ahead and talk about the January employment report that came out on Friday, which uh, caused the market to kind of take a little bit of a dip. And if you weren't confused by the economy already, the jobs data should have twisted your thinking into knots. In spite of the fact that retail sales have fallen for two months in a row and the markets have seemingly priced in a soft landing, non-farm payrolls rose 517,000 in January plus 71,000 for prior months, easily beating the consensus expected 188,000. However, all those cuts you're hearing in the tech industry were not caught up in these numbers, so we'll see what happens here in February. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.4%, tying the lowest level since the early 1950s. And if you believe that tight labor markets cause inflation, we don't, but the Fed does, this is a reason to keep tightening monetary policy. Don't expect the Fed to swallow its pride and go back to raising rates by 50 basis points in March, but investors should expect the Fed to raise rates by more than the futures market now expects and keep rates at higher levels for longer. The most impressive indicator for January was total hours worked, which surged 1.2%, more than offsetting modest declines in November and December. And yes, average hourly earnings rose a modest three-tenths of 1% for the month, but the two sectors with the greatest payroll gains were leisure and hospitality and education and health services, which tend to have below average earnings. An alternative measure of jobs, which is household employment that includes small business startups, increased 894000 in January. But this incorporates new estimates of the U.S. population, and that change alone accounted for about 810,000 of the gain in civilian employment. But you have to add in the fact that the labor market is an often lagging indicator, and it may be even more so now because this is the first time in more than 20 years that businesses faced heightened recession risk due to tighter monetary policy rather than mark-to-market rules or COVID lockdowns. Industrial production and retail sales are getting weaker, not stronger. As a result, we think many companies are getting over their skis, continuing to hire in anticipation of business activity that when it doesn't materialize will eventually force them to cut payrolls substantially. Mixed in with monetary policy that is now likely to get and remain tighter than the market anticipates, we continue to think that equity investors should be cautious. COVID policies were unprecedented, so we shouldn't be surprised that the data is still very volatile. And we got the fourth quarter productivity report out also this week. Non-farm productivity rose in the fourth quarter, increasing at a 3% annualized rate as output rose at a quicker pace than the hours worked, leading to more output per hour. Still, productivity is down 1.5% from a year ago, and for the calendar year of 2022 it was down 1.3% versus 2021, which is the largest, largest annual decline since 1974. Even though inflation is still high, Real inflation-adjusted compensation per hour grew at a 1% annualized rate in the fourth quarter, the first reading, positive reading of the year. However, inflation still remains a key headwind for workers' purchasing power as real compensation is down 3.8% from a year ago. And this is going to be an ongoing issue in the coming quarters as inflation stays stubbornly elevated. On the manufacturing front, productivity declined at a 1.5% annual rate, as both output and hours fell. But output fell at a faster pace. This along with other manufacturing data that we have received over the past few months shows that manufacturing has slowed and is likely in a recession already. You can expect hours and output to continue to weaken in the quarters ahead. And in other news on the employment front, initial jobs fell 3,000 last week to 183,000. Meanwhile, continuing claims for regular benefits fell 11,000 to 1.655 billion. Also earlier this week, cars and light trucks were sold at a 15.7 million annual rate in January, up 17.7 percent from December and 4.1 percent from a year ago. But don't get too excited about this increase. Fleet sales to corporate purchasers think rental car companies were the reason for the surge in January, but are very unlikely to be repeated in months ahead. And the January ISM Manufacturing Index report came out this week, and U.S. manufacturing sector fell further into contraction territory in December, with only two of 18 industries reporting growth. Respondent comments in January showed customers pulling back on purchases of manufactured goods as well as improvements in the supply chain issues that have plagued factory sector over the past few years. Given that consumers have been shifting their preferences away from goods and back towards services, it wasn’t surprising to see how new orders index declined for the third consecutive month in January. However, worries about the future have now caused factories to slow down the pace of production, with the index declined further in January. However, there is some good news in this report. Though the employment index has declined modestly in January, it remained in expansion territory. And surprisingly, panelists' sentiments shifted sharply in January, with a majority saying that they're looking to hire rather than reduce headcount. Part of this may be the recent weakening in the US dollar, which could be spurring a rebound in export orders. Meanwhile, the data on supply chain pressures continue to look reassuring. For example, though the Supplier Deliveries Index rose slightly to 45.6 in January, that was still the second lowest reading since 2009. And when this index is below 50, it means that deliveries are speeding up. Finally, though the Prices Index report rose for the first time in 10 months, it still remains in contraction territory. And while lower prices for some goods will help moderate overall inflation, we still expect the services sector will now be the main driver going forward, keeping inflation well above the Fed's 2% target. In labor market news, the ADP employment report showed a gain of 106,000 private jobs in January, well below the consensus of 180,000. Makes you wonder where that 500,000 dollar number came from. We also got data on construction which showed that spending declined four-tenths of 1% in December, with large declines in residential and manufacturing projects more than offsetting gains in roads. In other recent news, national average home prices continued to trend downward in November, with the Case-Shiller Index declining three-tenths of 1%, and the FHFA Index, which tracks homes financed by conforming mortgages, slipping a tenth of 1%. And although both indices are still up about 8% from a year ago. They're also both down from the June 22 peak, and the Case Shiller is down 2.5%. The FHFA is down 1%. You can expect further home price declines until at least late this year. And in the past three months, prices are down the most in Las Vegas, Phoenix, and San Francisco. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. We don't
0: have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city. But sometimes, things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI Traffic Alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are, and if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. A conservative take on issues important to Watcom County and the Pacific Northwest. This sounds crazy that you're going to tell the schools you must do
2: extra service for those kids with learning difficult. But when it comes to especially gifted kids, we can't give them special classes because it doesn't include a sufficient percentage of kids of color. Yes, that's
1: what's
0: actually happening in Washington state. Lars Larson, noon to 3 each weekday on KGMI. 62 63 64 Medicare so many of us get hung up on our age but what we fail to realize we've been paying for health insurance since we were old enough to work which means we may actually be getting a raise once we're on Medicare sound complicated? Let D&D Insurance help make the complicated task of enrolling for your health insurance a little less complicated. I'm Derek and my wife Denise and I, along with our amazing staff of family and friends, keep things running here at D&D Insurance. We try to help anyone and everyone navigate this ever-changing world of health insurance. Whether you're retiring and trying to figure out Medicare supplements and Medicare Advantage plans, an employer looking for better benefits for your employees, or you're self-employed and needing a plan for yourself and family, we're here to help. Give us a call at 392-8159. See you at D&D Insurance, where we try to make the complicated uncomplicated. Ask the experts. Astron Solar.
3: Whoa, 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 Callum, what's going on, buddy? Everything's so depressing. England lost again, the economy's in tatters, and all it ever does around here is rain. Well, this might cheer you up. Did you know that the US Congress passed a suite of bills that completely changed the game for clean energy in our community? I'm listening. We were able to negotiate a 10 year extension to the 30% investment tax credit, and now, for the first time ever, schools, governments, and nonprofits are eligible. Well, that is a big deal. Yes, and we were able to include some big benefits for American manufacturing so that we can ensure that our dollars are being spent locally and that our country continues to prosper. You see, this is exactly why I moved to America. Stable, intelligent, and thoughtful political leadership. (laughs) Oh boy. Western Solar is an elite Panasonic partner. To learn more about the best products and warranties in the industry, come visit us on Home Road in Bellingham or online at westernsolarinc.com. Ask the experts with Western Solar.
1: This is Heidi Person, General Manager of the Cascade Radio Group, with a look at some good news in our community that we like to call the upside.
0: Serving members since 1936, WECU has served Whatcom County and the state of Washington for more than 80 years. This past fall, WECU announced the recipients of their Education First grant program, which supports local groups advancing education right here in Whatcom County. In total, the program awarded $110,000 to three local nonprofits making a positive impact to our community, including the Nooksack Salmon Enhancement Association, Pickford Film Center, and the Bellingham Child Care and Early Learning Center. To find out more, visit wecu.com slash education first.
1: The Upside is brought to you from a grant provided by Bayside Coin & Jewelry. They are the largest buyer and seller of gold and silver in the Northwest. Bayside Coin & Jewelry in the Iowa Business Park. If you have good news to report, email it to us at the Upside at cascaderadiogroup.com. Cascade Radio
0: Group invites you to the first Chili and Chowder Charity Cookoff this Sunday at Gruff Brewing in Bellingham. Your admission gets you tasting tickets and a vote. Sample from the best restaurants in Bellingham, then cast your vote for your faves. Ten-plus restaurants will be vying for your vote. Proceeds benefit domestic violence and sexual assault services of Whatcom County. The Chili and Chowder Charity Cookoff this Sunday, Gruff Brewing, noon till 3. $15 at the door benefiting DV Sass of Whatcom County. A 21 and older event. Get informed and inspired with Saturday Morning Live on KGMI. Join a group of knowledgeable hosts as they present a variety of guests and viewpoints on issues important to our area and to you and your family. Sponsored by Asset Advisors, LLC and Linden Sheet Metal each Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com.
2: Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Thanks for being with us this Sunday morning. We've got one more economic report for the week. We have the January Institute of Supply Management non-manufacturing index report that came out, and the ISM services index, which is the services versus manufacturing, surprised sharply to the upside for January, rebounding from contraction territory, which was below 50 in December by posting the largest monthly increase besides the COVID reopening month since records began in 1997. The rise was driven by new orders and business activity, both of which surged to 60.4. Meanwhile, categories for employment and supplier deliveries both rose to 5%, signaling no change in jobs or production bottlenecks. Respondent comments in January were largely positive, citing strong demand and a cautious optimistic growth outlook for 2023. But finally, the prices paid index ticked down to still elevated 67.8, which is well below its peak in early 22. Make no mistake, inflation is still a major problem in the services sector, with 15 out of 18 industries reporting paying higher prices. We expect the service sector to keep inflation trending well above the Fed's 2% target for some time. Comparing the two January ISM reports, it's clear that businesses and consumers are shifting resources away from goods and towards the service sector. And while the service sector does not appear to be there yet, we believe that the U.S. economy will enter a recession in 2023. A handful of reports like industrial production, retail sales, and M2 suggest that we already could be there, although the reports muddy that picture. We continue to think that equity investors should be, continue to be cautious. One thing we're certain about, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and eventually the bill for the massive artificial stimulus in 2021 and 21 will come due. So let's take a look here at this Fed statement that came out Wednesday after that last quarter of 1% increase, and basically we're seeing that they're slowing, but they are not stopping. The Fed downshifted to a smaller rate hike to start 23, but the job is far from done as expected. The Fed raised rates by 25 basis points, slowing from their 50 basis point hike in December and their 75 basis point hikes in the four meetings before that. That means they went to a quarter percent previously after raising a half percent in December and three quarters of a percent at each of the previous four meetings. However, The Fed did continue to reiterate that ongoing tightening is warranted and repeated the view that the risk of doing too little is greater than the risk of doing too much. And while we're going to have to wait to March to get updated forecasts from the Fed, which is their dot plots, there were a number of changes to the Fed's statement, and Powell had plenty to talk about during his press conference. If you only saw the statement announcing that the Fed moved, the primary takeaway would have been a shift towards a more dovish tone. Instead of focusing on the factors causing inflation to stay elevated, the Fed introduced new texts that inflation pressures have started to ease. And gone is the commentary from the ongoing Russian-Ukraine conflict contributing to inflationary pressures, which is now replaced with a note that the conflict is keeping global uncertainty elevated. And finally, with the size of the rate hike, down to a quarter of a point, Texas changed to shift the attention from pace of hikes to the extent of future hikes. In other words, the Fed focus is now finding the finish line. Then the press conference started. Chair Powell stated Dovish statingly that it's gratifying to see disinflation starting to show in the data and acknowledging that softening in-wage pressures is a positive sign for future inflation, but he then tempered those remarks by reinforcing his belief that there is more work to be done. What is the Fed concerned about, that non-housing service inflation remains unusually high? Well, until the metric turns, the Fed will not feel comfortable claiming victory and backing off. Nick Camaros, who's the Wall Street Journal's Fed reporter, who many watch as the unofficial mouthpiece for Powell and Company, asked the question that many would have been thinking, can the Fed simply pause at the current level of rates and watch to see how that flows through the inflation prints in the months ahead? And Powell responded by saying that the Fed thinks the greatest risk and the most difficult situation for the Fed to manage is not doing enough and seeing inflation reaccelerate. So if the Fed overshoots on tightening and inflation comes down faster and further than anticipated, the Fed has far more tools available to ease policy. Victory over inflation is priority number one. And it's good that the Fed has prioritized the fight against inflation, but the unnecessary path to get there will likely bring volatility to the financial markets. While the markets have rallied to start the year, we expect the party to end or slow down once we realize how much the economy is going to slow down due to the decline in M2 measure of money supply since early last year. The economic medicine, while bitter, is part of the price that we're going to pay for policy mistakes in 20 and 21, and we're still amazed at how little attention the Fed and the journalists give to the money supply issue, which we continue to be very concerned about. Okay, switching away from the weekly economic reports. Got a report out this week here that even on $100,000 plus, more Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. The share of Americans who say that they live paycheck to paycheck climbed last year. Most of the new arrivals in that category were among the country's highest highest earners, a new study shows. Some 64% of U.S. consumers, equivalent to 166 million people, were living paycheck to paycheck at the end of 2022, and that's to, according to a survey by Industrial publication industrypublicationpayments.com and Lending Club Corp. That's an increase of 3 percentage points from a year earlier, or 9.3 million Americans. And out of that group, some 8 million were people earning more than 100000 More than half, of that income cohort say that they live paycheck to paycheck in December, up nine percentage points from a year earlier. The numbers likely reflect glowing strain on household budgets after the cost of living surged. Wages have often failed to keep up and pandemic savings have got drawn down. This year may bring further pressure when less than half of the survey respondents saying that they expect their incomes to keep up with inflation. So prospects for consumer spending are cloudy. Elevated prices, eroded personal savings and increased reliance on credit point to weak consumer spending this winter. These dynamics will be exasperated by negative wealth effects from low stock prices and declining home values. Other indicators also point to some level of financial stress. The latest University of Michigan survey showed that consumer sentiment, while it climbed from 2022 lows, remains far below pre-pandemic levels. Fourth quarter economic growth data published this last week highlighted a slowdown in household spending. Inflation-adjusted disposable incomes remain below their levels at the start of the pandemic in 2020, indicating that consumers have seen no real income gain in three years, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. The report didn't provide a definition for paycheck to paycheck, which typically means that people rely entirely on their monthly incomes to meet basic obligations and would be in immediate difficulty if income was interrupted. The label doesn't necessarily mean that people are having trouble staying current on their debt payments, but the survey suggests that a growing number are... It found that 24% of respondents had issues paying their bills in December. Among those earning more than $100,000 and living paycheck to paycheck, the share rose 16% from 11% a year earlier. The study surveyed almost 4,000 people between December 8th and December 23rd. And I always like getting these questions from listeners and what have you. They call me here and they ask me a question. And this one came in this week and a lot of questions about second wife. This one was really kind of funny because he asked, what will my second wife receive if I die? And this one was funny. He says, I took social security at full retirement age in October of 20. My wife took her shortly thereafter, but not quite at full retirement age. She said, we married in May of 2014. Both are second marriages, and she's collecting a portion of my earnings. Now, listen to this one. But we will divorce once we pass 10 years of marriage. So he's going to stay with Terry to her for 10 years so that she can continue to get a piece of his Social Security. So basically, her benefit will continue for her lifetime. Then, listen to this one. My plan is to remarry thereafter. My girlfriend is 60 right now and began collecting at age 60 as a widow. If we are married and I die first, and I assume that she'll be eligible to receive my lifetime earnings, but at a reduced amount based on the fact that she began receiving at 60, what would that percentage reduction be? Well, this answer is kind of interesting because survivor benefits can be confusing to navigate. I often find myself... You know basically, the callers help them digest the specific rules that pertain to their unique situation for this one 's question answer, assuming that he remarries the sixty year old girlfriend after divorcing his current spouse again after they 've been married for ten years, so they 're married in two thousand and fourteen, so they've got to continue this little thing here for another uh, about a year and year and six months almost but anyway, assuming he remarries the sixty year old girlfriend after divorcing the current spouse. And then predeceases his new spouse. The good news is that she'll be able to switch to a widow's benefit based on his work record. And if his benefit is larger than the widow's benefit that she is now collecting, it would be equal to the full benefits check that he was collecting without reduction if she's at least 67 at that point. And the reduction she incurred by collecting her current widow's benefit at age 60, which is 28.5% reduction, won't carry over to a new widow's benefit that she might be entitled to collect at some point in the future. So married, got a girlfriend, going to get divorced when they had 10 years in. Next wife, started taking Social Security early because she was a widow at age 60. Now he dies, she gets her full amount if she's at least 67 It's really interesting sometimes, isn't it? We'll be right back.
1: Why West Edge Credit Union? Because they're all about the community. Of course, I like that West Edge has low interest rates and loan specials. But what I really love is that West Edge partners with local nonprofit and City of Bellingham organizations. Plus, they put on events like Community Shred. And they talk to me like I'm a real person, not an account number. West Edge really cares.
0: Join West Edge Credit Union today. West Edge is federally insured by NCUA. West Edge Credit Union on the corner of James and Alabama in Bellingham.
1: For over 130 years, the benevolent and protective order of Elks has been standing tall and supporting the communities across our state. Over $2 million is invested annually in the Elks therapy program for children, helping fill the gaps in our medical system one child at a time at no cost to the family's help. Visit discoverelks.com to learn more about your local lodge today. Join in on the community, friendship, and charitable works of the Elks. That's discoverelks.com. Sponsored by the Washington State Elks Association and aired in cooperation with the Washington State Association of Broadcasters in this state. Hey,
3: at our startup, my team and I move at the speed of tech 24 7. And every single day, it's information overload. It's coming at me from all directions. And you know what? Bottom line, I just need the news that matters. So where do I turn? Local radio and TV. I want to hear from people who live and work in my town. They give me the real story with information I know I can rely on. So where else can I find out what's happening in my community? weather and traffic, things that affect my family, and my business. I want to stay informed by sources I trust, my local radio and TV stations, for the best entertainment, sports, news, traffic, and weather, with no agenda, and more reliable than other platforms. So, if you ask me, for the information I want anytime, anywhere, I stay local. Support your local station. Text RADIO to 52886 today, furnished by the NAB and this station. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out.
1: Cause there ain't no doubt I love this
0: land. God bless the USA.
2: Welcome back to World Wake Up. Dick if here with you this Sunday morning here in KGMI. Again, if you ever got questions for us, give us a call. 360-733-1200 going to talk a little bit about how high net worth earners are winners under Secure 2.0. That's the law passed in the Omnibus Spending Bill right at the end of the year. And there's been plenty of applause over the Secure 2.0 provisions included in the bill that Congress passed. As we look at it, the bill's clear winners are those that are high net worth wage earners. With our help, they'll now have even more latitude to do Roth conversions and save money in income and capital gains taxes, make their retirement savings last longer and enhance their legacies. And lower wage earners and those constrained by student loan debt gain some ground, but not nearly as much as those with retirement plans that can afford to save. So let's talk about putting Secure 2.0 to work for higher net worth individuals. I've talked before about the potency of Roth conversions, helping minimize taxes and maximize retirement income. To sum it up, withdrawals from Roth IRAs are not taxable as income, and the heirs of the accounts realize the same benefit for 10 years, and that they have to withdraw money and zero out the accounts. The new law just enhanced this opportunity. Under Secure 2.0, the age of RMDs is increased to 73 effective this year, and 75 effective January of 20, uh, 1st of 2033. So that means if you don't turn 75 until 2033, you have another 10 years to, to wait to let that money grow. And the previous age was 72, and that was an extension created in 2019 by the first Secure Act. But in the future, those in their sixties and early seventies are going to have a longer runway to be making voluntary withdrawals from their tax deferred plans, like IRAs, their four hundred one K's, your four hundred three B's, a SEP and simple plans in order to fund those Roth conversions. But for simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to all accounts with RMD provisions as IRAs. So the time to do this is generally the period after retirement or semi-retirement when your taxable income dips and your drop to a lower tax bracket. And before you have to t- start taking those RMDs, you can gain greater lifetime tax efficiency in this period by using other savings, such as your brokerage accounts for income and to pay taxes due to conversion. So Conversions demand a steady hand on the wheel. Withdrawals to fund Roth IRAs must be managed and finessed in a sequence that are sensitive to your tax brackets and other income, including Social Security, year to year. And there are other factors that affect timing and relative tax alphas that you can generate with Roth conversions, that are your filing status, whether you're married or single, your work status, whether you're working full or part-time, or you're retired, and your income, relative age, health, and other taxable accounts. And there are generally more opportunities for future tax savings with Roth conversions when both members of a married couple are alive. Joint filers have a more of a variety in tax brackets and higher standard deductions. After the death of one spouse, the widowed spouse will have a standard deduction that has been roughly cut in half, less flexibility in tax brackets, and they might no longer have the reserves to do Roth conversions. So it's surprising. many in their late 50s through early 70s how dynamic tax management becomes in those years. It wasn't life supposed to get a little simpler? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the Roths can help cover the vagaries of life and the need to plan for death. People often underestimate the costs that they'll have to have a good future to live into their 80s and 90s, People who are comfortably living on their budget are diagnosed with a disabling disease. They can no longer live alone. They need in-home help, around-the-clock nursing care, or memory care residents. Roth assets along with broker's assets can provide a financial life raft for retirees. They are a buffer against having to withdraw and pay taxes on assets from traditional IRAs. They also have a better place to hold assets with potentially high returns. Roth conversion strategy supports the tax efficient estate planning for high net worth into households. There are generally two overarching goals for minimizing taxes while they're alive and after they've passed away. Number one, empty IRAs and similar accounts for which assets are taxable upon withdrawal and subject to RMDs, and 2 leaving the bequest to the family, friends, associates or charities a combination of Roth errors and stocks with significant unrealized gains held in those brokerage assets. Achieving tax alpha for you and your heirs will be daunting if you are still using spreadsheets to determine your tax liabilities. Luckily, there is software available. That we can use in our financial service industry, that can help evaluate a household's portfolio and factors that are listed. And the software produces recommendations for one-time or sequential Roth conversions based on different scenarios for your future. After all, who doesn't like to tell them like I can save some money on taxes? So we do a lot of Roth IRA conversions. We use a program called Holistic Plan. We can scan your tax return in and talk about future earnings, look at what your social called security is going to do, look at your tax bracket, and talk about other issues that may or may not create a situation where you need to be concerned about what you can do and also do those conversions. So it's something we're more than happy to do. And while we're talking about Roth conversions, I get a lot of calls from a lot of listeners and uh, had one recently and he said, I've been doing Roth conversions this year for two small accounts, one a rollover IRA, the other a SEP IRA to consolidate these into fewer accounts. Actually that was right at the end of last year. And he said the small SEP IRA has been drained this year, that was last year by converting the balance into his Roth. But the rollover IRA was reduced by one third this year and the rest should be converted to a Roth. And that would now have to be done in 2024. But his question came down to the fact that if he turns 72 in July of this year, so he must begin RMDs this year based on his December 22 balances. He wanted to know if I finished draining or converting the Roth IRA in early 23, will my RMDs be based on the December 31st of 22 balance? he wanted to know if I convert the balance in early 23, it will still have to do that RMD. He says it seems unfair to be forced to take RMDs from an empty account based on the balance of the previous year, but he can't find anything that says otherwise, and he thinks for our advice. Well, this is a pretty simple one. If you have a balance in your traditional IRA on December 31st of last year, then you have to take that RMD based on the value this year in 23. RMDs cannot be converted. So you must take your 23 RMD before you continue your conversion schedule into this next year. And even if you want to pay taxes on everything and convert the entire remaining balance, you still have to take that RMD first. So if you had an RMD and you had money in that account as of December 31st, you still need to do those RMDs. You can't go ahead and try to convert that money to a Roth and get away with it. You have to take that RMD out. And that RMD cannot be rolled over. As as we mentioned, it cannot be converted. The only way to avoid a 23 RMD on those dollars was to have had everything converted by the end of last year. And then I had another question that came up about the sum of RMDs from more than one IRA, in this case a traditional rollover and inherited IRA. I wanted to know if by taking 100% from the inherited IRA, for example, in this case they had a 10,000 RMD from the traditional IRA, 5,000 from the rollover IRA, and a $1,000 RMD from their inherited IRA. They wanted to know if that $16,000 sum of IRMDs could be taken 100% from the inherited IRA only and satisfy the requirements for all the three IRAs. And the answer on this one was no. Uh, there are rules governing the aggregation of IRA RMDs. Some accounts be, can be aggregated for RMD purposes, some cannot. In this scenario, the traditional IRA and rollover IRA are essentially same. So, in this case, those can be consolidated. Both are just like traditional IRAs, but in the R&Ds on those two accounts could be aggregated taken from one or of the two traditional IRAs. However, the inherited IRA is different different type of IRA. It cannot be aggregated with your traditional IRAs. The RMD from the inherited IRA can only be taken from the inherited IRA. So in this case, their RMD on that inherited IRA was a thousand dollars. They had to take that thousand dollars out of the inherited IRA. They couldn't add up the value of all of them and take one out of one or take it all out of one. You have to take you can on the traditional IRAs and the regular IRAs and the SEPs and the SIMPLEs. You can consolidate those but you cannot do anything separately with the inherited IRAs. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah, you have questions for us, you can always give us a call. 360-733-1200 Thank you for listening and don't forget our live shows on Saturday next Saturday at 11 o'clock. Have a great week. Again, give us a call if you got questions 360 733 Thank you.
1: The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC. A registered investment advisor.